according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Continuing in our study in the Upper Room and Walk to the Garden Discourse. Episode 23 in uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 23, Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer. That's how it's titled by the uh, E.T. Robertson Harmony that we've been making use of and adapting all this time. Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer. We've covered uh, chapter 14 through uh, several lessons, six points of study, and uh, we reach point seven then at the time that we're ready to begin chapter 15. And I think uh, I'm going to keep all of chapter 15 in point seven. Uh, We're going to break it down into an A, B, and a C. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. You'll notice at the end of chapter 14, he says, uh, get up, let us go from here. And uh, they actually depart the upper room at the end of chapter 14 and uh, proceed through the streets of Jerusalem uh, after dark. As you know, we're approaching midnight. And uh, they arrive at the garden where he goes in to pray and uh, ahead of his arrest, which happens right at midnight. So in any event, they, uh, he says, get up, let us go from here. And chapter 15, 16 and 17 are all spoken while they are walking, while they are en route from the upper room to the, uh, the ravine. And they will then cross the ravine to enter into the garden after his prayer of chapter 17. So point seven in the outline, on the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. Remember, this message is the church age preview, the the preview of coming attractions. It is not an unveiling of the mystery. Mystery cannot be unveiled until uh, the Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost and the actual church begins. But it is a preview that will only make sense once the mystery is revealed. All right, I hope we're clear on that. Everything we've seen uh, from the time Judas walked out at the end of chapter 13 to chapter 14, all of this so far is a preview of the coming church age. And that's what we're dealing with today. All right, I'm going to open up in a word of prayer. Uh, Dan, can you make sure the doors are configured correctly? Okay, thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your truth. I thank you for the opportunity we have to study truth. Once again, Father, to assemble together to receive instruction. Thank you for this holiday. It always brings out folks that can't be here other, other Wednesdays during the year. We thank you for this. Father, we ask for your blessing on our study, that you would set aside distractions, hedge us about, protect us. Father, bless our time together in your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. All right. We have something brand new that's happening here. Something that these Old Testament believers would not have related to. And something that really goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So point one in the outline, Adam was given a garden to tend. But the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. Adam was given a garden to tend. That's Genesis 2, verse 5 and verse 15. But the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. 
And so we're going to handle verses 1 through 8 here under subpoint A. It's going to have a variety of subpoints. Uh, we're going to handle verses 9 through 17 under point B, and we will handle verses 18 through 27 under point C. And so you understand that we're going to take all of chapter 15 and throw it here in our outline under main point 7. So Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now this is, uh, this is important. This is vital that we recognize that not only is this uh, earth-shattering, it's, it's brand new, but it also bears very little connection to anything pertaining to the Jews, to anything pertaining to Israel. Israel has, has receives, there's a number of Old Testament messages that reference vines in the Old Testament, um, and, and typically they are speaking of blessing or they're speaking of, um, uh, shall we say, God's disfavor upon Israel because they blew it under the prosperity testing, all right? Uh, they have things they can look forward to in the millennial kingdom. They can look forward to uh, a time when every man will sit under his own vine. Every man will sit under his own fig tree. That a vine is a, and a fig tree, these are, these are emblems of future millennial blessing and things that they will have to look forward to when Messiah is reigning on the throne. Um, but this passage really has no connection to those promises at all. This passage talks about a, an organic union between us and God, about God living in us, about us living in God, about us bearing fruit, about God working through us. None of that has any connection to Israel's promises, to Israel's expectations, to Israel's stewardship, to Israel's work assignment. So as we try to look back to the Old Testament to find the truth, we don't find it in Israel. We find it in Adam. We find it in Adam. And that's the point I'm trying to make here in main point A. When it says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Understand this is true in contrast, not with false. True in contrast with a shadow or an anticipation or a, uh, something that was a replica or a simulation, for example, like the true temple versus the tabernacle or Solomon's temple. It's not that Solomon's temple was a false temple. It just wasn't the true temple. It was a foreshadowing. It was an anticipation. It was a replica. We understand that uh, from the very scriptures that described its construction. Okay? So this is true not in contrast with what is false, but true in contrast with what came before as a foreshadowing or an anticipation. And that, uh, I think once you lock in on that, then you can answer properly, well, what were the anticipations of this? What was the anticipation of, of the vine and the vine dresser? See, and we realize that it goes all the way back to Adam, created in the image of God and assigned to to image God, assigned to have stewardship on this earth, commanded to tend a garden. And so Adam, in the image of God, tended a garden and he painted a picture uh, for what we understand. Now, the reality is God, the father, the vine dresser, tending us, bearing fruit through us, something that was not fulfilled in Gentiles, fulfilled in Jews, but fulfilled in the church. In our present stewardship. Okay. Now, hopefully, you know, um, <laughs> I stress this, I stress it hard. Hopefully it sinks in that you really embrace the full impact of how unique the church is. This is nothing that had ever come before. Uh, these, these disciples, their heads were spinning. Their, their minds were exploding because they weren't expecting any of this. This is all brand new stuff. And uh, we can come to appreciate like the rapture doctrine in chapter 14. Whoever would have dreamed of that. And uh, the idea here of, of abiding in Christ and bearing fruit and the Father tending us, 
uh, a Jewish person would have never dreamed of anything related to that in an Old Testament context. Okay. Under this, seven subpoints. This is the seventh and final I am message. The seventh and final I am message. Hopefully you have a good handle on the other I am messages. I am bread in John 6. I am the light in John 8. I am the door in John 10. Also in John 10 is I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11 when all the boo-hooing is going on there at the death of Lazarus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just uh, a chapter previous here in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this was the, the message he gave as he was uh, unfolding the, the rapture doctrine there in those early verses. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so that sixth I am message was, was uh, important for us to identify with because it's coming in this same context. It's coming on the same night in which our Savior is betrayed. And then message number seven. So the sixth and seventh I am messages come here on this night in which he's betrayed after the traitor departs. So Judas only heard five of these seven I am messages. All right. I am message number seven. Uh, I am the vine. This is the first and only of the I am messages that also mentions what the father is and also mentions what you are. It is the only I am message that adds my father is and y'all are. Okay. And we went through uh, nowhere, we, nowhere. I mean, we, we went one by one. It never does it say, you know, I am the bread and my father is the baker. Okay. I am the bread. My father is the baker and you are the, the, the crust. Okay. Or you are the, what do you sprinkle on bread? You're, you're the butter. Okay. Uh, it doesn't say anything like that. Or I am the light. My father is the battery. Y'all are the the lens no nothing like that the first six of the i am messages don't mention well the sixth one mentions the father no one comes to the father but by me but uh none of them mention i am and you are in a connection see now you could probably figure out if, if i am the good shepherd what does that make us sheep okay got it uh if, if i am the bread what does that make us well we're the we're the folks that eat the bread okay that's how we get saved Okay, so you can find connections to us if you digest the doctrine and cycle it and appreciate it and apply it. You can understand where we connect. So all the I am messages, but none of them are spelled out in the text like they, like it is here. Okay, this is what makes it unique. I am my father is y'all are. I am my father is y'all are. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Y'all are the branches in me and my father is going to prune you. Okay, so this is the only I am message to contain. My father is and y'all are components. Secondly, point two, branches either bear fruit or not. Branches either bear fruit or not. This is like a binary system here. <laughs> okay, and uh, either you do or you don't. Like you're either saved or you're lost. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either fruit bearing or you're not fruit bearing. That is an absolute issue, like our spirituality. You're either walking in light or walking in darkness. It is an absolute binomial or uh, binary contrast. And these two alternatives are what sparks the Father's activity. The Father's the vine dresser. He's going to do one of two things. He's either going to lift up or he's going to prune. And on what the Father does is entirely dependent on what you're doing as a branch. Every branch in me 
that does not bear fruit. I like the translation, he lifts up. He lifts up rather than takes away. I think sometimes they, uh, they, uh, they take verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. And they, they read that back into verse 2 and fail to see distinctions between verse 2 and verse 6. So they think it's kind of a redundant thing saying the same thing. It's not. So every branch in me. So there you go. The branch is in me. That's, that's where it is. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. The reason why it's not bearing fruit, even though it's in me, why is it not bearing fruit? It's down there in the dirt. It needs to be lifted up. And this is what the vine dressers do. They lift it up. They get them up on the poles. They get them up on the wires. They get them lifted up. See? And this is the process here. In other words, they get special attention. The non-fruit-bearing branches get special attention. Once they are fruit-bearing, then they get the same attention every other fruit-bearing branch gets. They all get equally pruned. But the ones that are not fruit-bearing get the special attention from the vine dresser. So branches either bear fruit or not. These two alternatives spark two alternative actions taken by God the Father. He either iros or kathiros. He either iro or kathiros. And it's a word play. It's a, it's a, uh, you got the first verb, iro, and then the second verb is a compound of the first verb. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he iros. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes it, he kathiros it. There's no difference between the two branches. Both branches are in me. You cannot say that, well, one's a believer and one's not a believer. Both branches are in me. The branches themselves are identical. It's only their activity that's different. And the activity of the branch is what sparks the activity of the vine dresser. Now, I hope this doesn't bother anybody. hope you don't feel like we're somehow um, compromising. No. Thank you, sir compromising sovereignty that say, oh, well, God's hands are tied. God's not free to do what He wants to do anymore because God's now a slave to our volition. Not so. God sovereignly established this procedure. <laughs> God designed us to be branches. God designed Christ to be the vine. God designed the uh, mandate to bear fruit. And God Himself determined that He was going to iro the non-fruit-bearing branches and He was going to kathiro the fruit-bearing branches. That was God's own choice to make. So he's not, uh, he's not now enslaved. To, his sovereignty isn't enslaved to our volition by virtue of the fact that God Himself set up this uh, circumstance in the first place. All right. The word kathiro is translated clean in a lot of those contexts, but it's, contra it's translated prune in this context only because uh, when, you're, when you're pruning, when you're clearing away dead stuff, uh, you are cleaning. You're cleaning the, the garden. You're cleaning the, the vine. You're cleaning the, uh, the area there. So nothing wrong with translating it clean. And that's what we have here in verse 3. You are already clean. You are already pruned. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. These eleven, these eleven are bearing fruit. They've been bearing fruit. 
They're apostles of the Lamb. Once Judas goes out, he's the only branch that wasn't even in him to start with and, and uh, wasn't even saved. Of course, if you're not abiding in the vine, you can't bear any fruit. Um, but he's gone. He's out there fetching the soldiers. It's only the eleven that he's talking to. They're all saved. They're all clean. He told them that at the foot washing episode. And uh, they're already being pruned. The Father's pruning them. He's been pruning them. He will continue to prune them. They're being equipped to become apostles on, on day one. On the day that the Holy Spirit descends, they are the apostles of the church. They're already apostles of the Lamb. They're going to become apostles of the church. You are already clean, pruned, because of the word which I have spoken to you. These eleven have the upper room discourse. So they already have the preview for the church. When the, when the Holy Spirit descends, when the mystery begins to be unveiled, these eleven are going to have background that nobody else is going to have. Okay? You know, there's others in the upper room. There's 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descends. And the Holy Spirit will descend. They'll become church-age believers. They'll have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. They'll, be, they'll have a spiritual gift. Everything that we're, we're accustomed to. But only these eleven have this message. The upper room discourse and walk to the garden discourse. Only they have the preview for the coming church age. The rest are going to start having it revealed to them prophetically, but these guys have the preview. Part of the pruning that's getting them ready to, to head up the church. Alright, and we looked at this under point three. The eleven are already clean. So we understand in this chapter, they're already pruned. John 13, verses 10-11, compared to John 15:3. Same verb in both chapters. It's kathairo. So I'm reminding you here, John 13, verse 10 and verse 11. And this is where Peter... None of them have any clue. This whole night has got to be a total frustration for them. <laughs> okay? Beyond the fact that their Savior gets executed. Um, for example... John 13, 7. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Okay? So what's the hereafter? The church age. The coming of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the coming stewardship where all the spiritualities are going to start to make sense. Where all of the typology and shadow doctrine and the rituals will start to, to, uh, to, to be understood. And of course, Peter doesn't understand it now. He says, never shall you wash my feet. Well, I got stinky feet. Don't you know, stay away from my feet. <laughs> Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter realizes he's wrong. And as usual, this is Peter's typical routine. Okay, What did Ralph say? He used to t Ralph had a series where he said, thought too slow, spoke too fast. Um, I forget now how he finished that, but it was a whole series on Peter. So Peter realizes he's wrong. Now he goes overboard. So he says, okay, well then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Okay? And the Lord could say, Peter, you still don't know what you're talking about. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And so we understand the, the relationship of our cleansing. The fact that you are saved means you have bathed. You've had the 100% total positional cleansing. You are completely clean. You only need the foot washing for the the experiential defilements, to confess your sins, to be restored back to fellowship. You don't need to get saved all over again. You just need to confess your sins to be restored to fellowship. So he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. This is our term. 
katharos, katharos, okay, from the verb kathairo that we're looking at here in John 15. But not all of you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you were clean. The one unbeliever doesn't qualify. He was not clean. He was not saved. So, the eleven are already clean. Now, back to John 15, though, he says you are already pruned or cleaned, not because you're saved, not because you're, uh, you have eternal life and you believed in me, blah, blah, blah. No, because of the word which I spoke to you. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. So we have cleaning in terms of salvation, but we also have cleaning in terms of the Father's pruning work. What the Father does to prune us. What the Father does to prepare us to bear fruit. To, to bear more fruit. So does that make sense? All right. So you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The Father has been pruning them and they're ready now to launch into the church age. They're ready to launch into the church age. Which gets us now to abide. Abide in me and I in you. Abide is the aorist imperative of meno. Abide in me and I in you. Abide is the aorist imperative of meno. Number 3306. And this is where all the commentaries will spend page after page after page after page to prove their point. And half of the commentaries will go one direction and the other half will go the other direction. And they will both use the vocabulary of meno to make their point. They will both use the, you know, the aorist imperative to make their point. And they'll say, well, an aorist imperative could be this. Yeah, it could be. An aorist imperative could be that. Yeah, it could be. All right. And so uh, pick what it could be uh, based on what you want it to be. <laughs> and, and you'll have uh, your typical commentary out there. Okay. Pick what it is, not based on, yes, what it could be, but based on its usage in this context and, and all of Scripture. Abide is the aorist imperative of Menno. Menno has 118 uses. We looked at several of them last week. Several of them last week. And it might be worth it to see a few more here today. But abide, remain, stay. Those are, those are your translations. There are some other synonyms and so forth. But it means this is where you... I like the term dwell. Right? Dwell. It's not on the screen, but but where do you dwell? Okay? Think about you dwell in a dwelling. You abide in an abode. You remain in a... Oh, I don't know. Okay? Uh, you, the point is, this is your residency. This is where you are remaining. You're not just hanging out. You're not just stopping over. Okay? You're not there for a visit. Remain has a concept of a permanency to it. In most cases. There are, there are exceptions. But in most cases, where you remain, where you dwell, where you abide, it's a, it's, a, it's a permanent dwelling. Not a temporary stopover. Not a short visit. And this is the thing. When, you, when you're abiding in Christ, when you're abiding in the Word of God, is it long term or is it short term? Okay. I find it remarkable that it is aorist, not present. It's not a present imperative. It's not a continuous action. It's not telling the person to abide all day, every day. It's not saying continuously abide, like, like you would expect in a present imperative, like abide uh, presently, now, continuously, today, tomorrow, the next day, all the time in your Christian walk. That's, uh, that's a, a present imperative. This is not a present imperative. It's an aorist imperative. An aorist is like a dot on the wall. An aorist is just a, a, a it's punctiliary action. It's a point. Sometimes we think of it as a point in time divorced from time. It's really timeless 
in a lot of ways. It's just abide. It's a, it's a reality. Either you do or you don't. Okay. I also think we have here a technical term because it is connected to the I and you. Abide in me and I and you. And it's different from, notice, just glance with me here. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. But then there's the abide in me that stands by itself that doesn't have the I and you attached to it. And then it has the abide in me and my words abide in you. That's different. Why is that different? So how do we, how do we handle an imperative where I'm commanding myself? Abide in me. And what, what are we saying with that I in you, that second part of it? Abide in me, and I will abide in you as a consequence? Is that an if, then? What is that? What is this abide in me and I in you? Okay. Well, the clue comes in John 6.56 that this reality of abide in me and I in you, to reciprocally abide, is the statement that defines salvation. John 6.56. This is where we have the connection of not only abide in me, but the corollary and I in you. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Again, that's not to say that other bread and drink is false. This isn't true in contrast with false. It's true in contrast with what is a, a symbol or a shadow or an anticipation. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the connection. Abides in me and I in him. And so we have this. It's a, it's a, it's a statement of salvation. This, uh, this verse is nothing more than just simply a, a, a statement of salvation. Abide in me and I in you. Okay? And it's not an order for them to get saved, but it is an order for anyone generally hearing this message, reading this text. Anyone that's not saved needs to be saved. Step one for bearing fruit, you've got to be saved. You've got to abide in Christ and have Christ abiding in you. That's the only way to bear fruit. Okay? I guess we could do something similar in here. We could say uh, we start every Bible class with uh, silent prayer for confession of sin, right? Well, could we also not start it with a gospel? <laughs> okay, it's time to start. It's 10 o'clock. We say, all right, step number one, verify that you have eternal life. Because if you're not saved, there's no point in sitting here. Okay, but we're feeding a spiritual food for spiritual children. The unbeliever, this doesn't make any sense. So step one. Okay, abide in Christ, Christ in you. Are you sure you're saved? All right, good, move on. Okay, and then now you're saved, are you in fellowship? Are you walking in the light? Have, have, are there sins or iniquities that's created a barrier between you and God? So confess your sins. Be restored to fellowship. Be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Have the foot cleansing. All right, you're saved, you're in fellowship. Now you're ready for truth. Abide in me and I in you. Simply a statement with reference to salvation. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Unless you abide in me. Now, here's the thing. This is where now um, people start to create a separate category of believers that are saved but are not abiding. That are saved but are somehow no longer in Christ. Okay, And they're, they're creating a distinction which can be found in other passages. But they're reading into this passage an idea of abiding that is uh, different than... And I think um, they do so in a very dangerous way. 
because they, they lend themselves then to the conclusion that, oh, if I'm not walking right, I'm going to be thrown into hell. I'm going to lose my salvation. And they look at this. They say, oh, thrown away as a branch dries up, cast into the fire and burned. <gasps> I must lose my salvation then. Am I in danger of losing my salvation? Am I in, in danger of going to hell? Okay. And so, why we want to slow down, why we want to take our time to identify that abide in me. What does that mean? What does abide in me and I in you? What does that mean? And then what does abide in me and my words abide in you? What does that mean? And there's where we start to observe some differences. Because there are a ton of believers who abide in me, but, but God's word is not abiding in them. Okay? They're not disciples. They're saved, but not disciples. And that's where we start to see some distinctions. And this is where we have verse 7, abide in me and my words abide in you. That's a different animal. And you'll note that that comes after the thrown into the fire thing. So we're cool with that. We're also going to see abide in my love by the time I get down to verse 9. That's a whole separate development right there. And I'm thankful that it comes in that order. I'm thankful that the love application doesn't come until we're after we're already past this abide in the word and the word abides in you step. Because there's a you understand why that's significant? I said a moment ago, there's, there are some believers that are not disciples. There are some believers that are not abiding in the Word of God. The Word of God is not abiding in them. So, are they abiding in God's love? Are they walking in love? No. They're not walking in love at all. They're not walking in truth. All right. So, abide is the aorist imperative of men. If you want to do a study on this, I would encourage you. As I said, it's 118 uses. You can pull it up. Um, you will find that it is a... Uh, huge concentration here in the Gospel of John. Abide in me. Do your uh, search here for minnow. Hundred eighteen results in hundred and two verses. And uh, just work your way through. Just start to gain the sense, and you're going to notice that in the bulk of them, there, the Apostle John. Does that jump out at you? <laughs> you know, when the bar pegs all the way to the right? You know, you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you add them together. What do you got? Three, two, seven. What was that, 12 uses? All right. How about 40? Okay. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined times three, and you still don't have all the uses that are be found in, in the Gospel of John. Right? The Pauline correspondence. Where else does it jump out at you? 1 John, 2 John, okay? 24 uses in 1 John. Three more in 2 John. You say, well, what's the big deal? Three. Yeah, but 2 John's only 13 verses long. It's got 255 words, and three of them are meadow. Okay, so pay attention to that. It jumps out at you in a concentrated way. I, don't know, I like playing with these just because I'm visual. Look at the hits in a book, and you divide it by, make it proportional to the size of the book. And you see 1 John and 2 John are where it's off the charts, right? If you make it proportional to the size of the book, John's still huge, but not like 1 John and 2 John. Hits in a chapter. Okay, John has a lot of uses, but where in John are all the uses? Right there in John 15. And here we are. Okay? Anyway, these are the kind of things you do when you do pursue your word studies and track them down. 
All right, so that's abide. Let's uh, try to wrap up points five, six, and seven here today because there's a lot I want to do with on connecting with this. If we have time by the end of the hour, I'll go back and we'll look at some of these abiding terms. Um, but I want to wrap up points five, six, and seven and get the conclusion of this. All right, abide in me and I in you. It's a statement of salvation. How do you do this? Who's the one that does this? The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. He's the one that abides in me and I in you. In order to obey this imperative, all you've got to do is be saved. Alright? And so that's it's an aorist imperative. It's once and for all and you're done. Now, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Alright? Now again, we're, we're branching out. We're, in, we're not technically addressing the 11 at this point. It's anyone who's reading, anyone that's kind of a generic you. Okay? You know. All right. Anyone who wants to bear fruit has to be saved. Anyone who wants to bear fruit has to be saved. And a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So if you chop off a branch and it's no longer connected to the vine in any way, you know, if it's laid next to there on the ground, is that branch still going to bear fruit? No, it's not alive anymore. It's dead. Its life depends on its connection to the vine. If it's not connected to the vine, then the, you know, the, the sap's not flowing. The, the, the veins aren't flowing. It's not connected. It's now a dead thing. It's a severed thing. It's like, uh, how, how's your heart going uh, to pump blood to your arm if you chop off your arm? Okay? Your arm will be laying there next to you, but it's not connected to your body anymore. And the heart's not pumping blood to it. Should make sense. <laughs> All right. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. There's the, the uh, one qualif uh, qualification for fruit bearing. It's going to be similar down in, um, as we see it here. All right. Bearing fruit. Here's our point. Point five. Not only are we commanded to bear fruit, we are commanded to bear much fruit. We are commanded to bear much fruit. Point five, bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. Bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. The Father is not glorified by a bunch of branches. The Father is not up there saying, Woohoo, I'm happy at all the branches I have now in the vine. He wants those branches to bear fruit. And, he want, and if they're not bearing fruit, He's going to lift them up. And if they are bearing fruit, He's going to prune them so that they bear more fruit. Because the Father's not glorified and well-pleased until we're bearing much fruit. So we have verse 5, we have verse 8 here in the same context. Bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. Now how much is much? And how much more do you need in order to have much? Text doesn't say. And it's not our business anyway. The Father's business. It's the Father's business. How much is much? How much is He satisfied with? Okay? I mean, if, if you're the one picking, picking trees, you know, picking fruit off a tree, like that, we used to have a pear tree in the backyard when I was growing up, and it, it, it I don't remember now, I have to ask my mother, did it bear much? How many pears would come off of it? I think... There was quite a bit as far as I knew. I could, I could graze in the backyard. I didn't have to go in that. You know, we had a rhubarb patch. We had um, a pear tree. We had, you know, um, 
different uh, different things. You could just feed yourself. Go graze. Don't go inside. Um, but how much is much? And it might be different for different people. You know, it might be that you're you're content. Yeah, okay, that's fine. And your husband's not, or, or your husband's content. You're not. You wanted more. You're disappointed. You were expecting more. You had higher expectations. Or maybe it exceeded your expectations. The point is, the vine doesn't make that choice. The vine does what it does. And the vine dresser is the one who's either content or not content. Who takes steps to prune and to, to address something he feels is not producing enough fruit. Or any fruit, in this case. So again, um, it's not just bearing fruit, it's bearing much fruit. And how much? Well, what were we designed for? If we were saved in Christ Jesus unto good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, well, how many is that? Well, we don't know. But who's the one that made those preparations? <laughs> okay, Who is the one that has the purpose for calling us? See, Paul said he wanted to lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So is that our purpose or is that his purpose? See, that's his purpose. He's the one that's prepared these good works. And how many has he prepared? How many has he prepared? Well, we don't know. But what we can assume is the fact that we're still here means there's still more to do. <laughs> okay? We could assume that if his work was done, in other words, if we have reached the totality of what his purpose is for us to be here, we wouldn't be here. He would take us home and say, well done. He's not going to leave us here when we finished our final assignment. Our final assignment, even, you know, we understand the process of dying grace, and you understand the, the privilege you have to, to give the gospel in your dying grace work assignment, then we're not done until he chooses to, to bring us through that valley of the shadow of death. We get to bear that fruit. So, I'm still on planet Earth. Woke up this morning, still here. All right, there's more work to do. And do I, do I grow content? Do I get content? Do I say, well, I've done much. Okay. When we say that, what we're really saying is I've done enough. I've done enough. Meaning, I'm kind of lazy and I don't want to do anymore. That, well, God should be happy with what I've done. I'm, I'm happy with it. <laughs> I think I've done enough. What more does he want? Well, that's, that's the human approach. Humility says there's more to do. And it's his good pleasure. So bearing much fruit. Look at verse 8. And it's going to require an active prayer life. We'll see that in verse 7. But my Father is glorified by this so that you bear much fruit. This is what glorifies the Father. Not that you do a thing here and there. Not that you occasionally hang out in His Word. Not that you led one person to Christ one time way back in 1978. Alright. You know, is that what you're banking on for the judgment seat of Christ? One thing you did way back when? Or two things you did, or you know, even if you did ten things, what have you done lately? What are you doing now? You know, do I get prideful over four thousand Bible classes taught? No. Are you kidding me? It's thirty years from now, maybe it's going to be ten thousand Bible classes taught. Hope I don't live that long. Hope the rapture doesn't delay that long. See. But what is it that uh, that we are content with? What is it that glorifies the Father? My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Actually, become my disciples. We'll connect this with uh, 
John 8 here in a moment. All right. Now, what did, how much fruit did Christ bear? How much did Christ glorify the Father? Quite a bit, right? He, he did a lot. You say, well, more than I'll ever do. Now, careful. Um, because Jesus himself promised, greater works than these will you do. Now, I mean, obviously the work of redemption was something only he could have done, and it was infinite value and, and all that. But, but I'm just talking about the course of his life, the fruit that he bore, when he said in John 17, I have accomplished all you've given me to do. How much was that? Hold your finger here. Let's look at John 17. Because this is what... We, we can't replicate his work of atonement, but we're not supposed to. We do replicate and imitate his work, his, 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 the, walk, the work of his walk. That's what we imitate. He says, um, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. This is why he knows that he's going to the cross tomorrow morning. He knows that tomorrow is Passover. Tomorrow he is the Lamb of God. Tomorrow he is laying down his life. All these previous times, he's, has not, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now it's come. Tomorrow's the day. And he knows that he's done everything there is to do. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. We need to be to the point where we can say that. And that, that life purpose, okay? This is why I try to make a distinction between the purpose for his death and the purpose for his life. That life purpose, we need to, we need to understand that and not get all, you know, Rick Warren purpose-driven, but understand what we're doing. Why did he save us? And are we doing what we are supposed to be doing? What he designed? What he's doing in and through us for his good pleasure? And to do so, we have to bear much fruit. And how much is his business? And if it's not much, expect to be pruned. Okay? Expect to be pruned. And if it's nothing at all, expect to be lifted up. See, if you find that you're, you're, you've, you're dangling down in the dirt, the Father's going to lift you up. Because He wants you to be a fruit bearer. So bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. Do-nothings are fire-bound. Point six. Do-nothings are fire-bound. Now here's where we've got to be careful. Because who's a do-nothing? The do-nothing is anyone that does not abide in me. The do-nothing is not even saved to start with. Do-nothings are fire-bound. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. Okay, he's not lifted up so that he can bear fruit. He's thrown away as a branch and dries up. Big difference between verse 6 and verse 2. And again, I highlight that the branch in verse 2 is a branch in me. This is a branch that's not in me. This is a branch that does not abide in me. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And if you have a little... Uh, if your publisher, your Bible publisher has put a little A in there and linked it to John 15, 2, then cross it off. Because the branch in verse 2 is in Christ. The branch in verse 6 is not in Christ. 
Do not link this verse to verse 2. Connect it to Matthew 13. Connect it to Matthew 24. Connect it to what we've studied related to the return of Christ at Second Advent. Matthew 13, 30, Matthew 13, 40 through 42, and the, and the one will be taken, one will be left passage of, of uh, Matthew 24, 25, I should say. I, I, I tend to confuse those chapters. Ten virgins, talents, be ready for his coming. One will be taken, one will be left. And of course, when you're looking for it, you don't see it. There it is. 24, 40, and 41. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This is not the rapture. This is not where believers are taken, caught up into heaven to glory while unbelievers are left on planet earth to face the tribulation. No, this is after the tribulation. And those that are taken are the unbelievers that are snatched out, bundled, and thrown into the fire. The ones left are the believers that endured to the end so as to be saved. They're left to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Part of their reward for their faithfulness in the tribulation. Matthew 13 the parable of the wheat and the tares should be familiar to each one of us. Matthew 13. Verse 30. Well, even prior to that. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were, were sleeping... His, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? We're confused here. You were sowing. You must have sowed good seed. But how did this happen? Is this your fault? Is this our fault? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No. And there's a reason why. If you're going to try to hunt down the wheat and the tares, there's a reason why you don't want to do this. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. You might damage a stock of wheat. And care for the wheat outweighs the, uh, the you know, concern for the wheat there, outweighs the concern for getting the tares out of your field. So wait, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. Now this is the snatching. One will be taken, first. One will be left, second. Okay. So first, one will be taken, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up. Similar to what we have in John 15. Any branch that does not abide in me, is thrown away as a branch, is bundled up, is cast into the fire. Same imagery. Then, second, one will be left. Gather the wheat into my barn. Allow the believers who survived the tribulation to enter into the barn, into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
All right. It gets explained in 40 through 42. The disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. So he lays it out here. The one who sowed this good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, they are the sons of the kingdom and the terrors are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks. Those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. No unbeliever is going to enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's going to start. Some will be born in later generations, but no unbeliever will start. It will be 100% saved on day one of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right. So the do-nothings are firebound. And the do-nothings are unbelievers. Unbelievers. Now, you say, yeah, but... Yeah, but what about uh, what about Christian do nothings? Okay, now be careful. I know what you're talking about, and I know where your concern is, and I know what passages you might even have in mind. What about Christian do nothings? Okay, let me just say first of all, those are different contexts. Are you thinking about First Corinthians four? Are you thinking about what are you thinking about when you think about Christian do-nothings? Okay? You're not thinking about John 15 because John 15 is not addressing Christian do-nothings. And even a Christian do-nothing that we call a Christian do-nothing has done something because he's eaten the flesh and he's drunk the blood. He has received eternal life. He abides in the, in the branch. So he's not a do-nothing as described here in verse 6 that's not even in Christ. He's done at least that. This is the will of my Father that you believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So he's not a do-nothing. He's done at least that. He's believed. He's in Christ. We talk about do-nothings in the sense that, well, they haven't, they're saved, but they haven't abided in the Word. They haven't borne fruit. They haven't done, they haven't done a lot. Well, that's something else. <laughs> okay? Don't be sloppy with your terminology. You call them a do-nothing because maybe in your view they haven't done enough. But they're still saved. The Father is still the vine dresser. The Father still paid them special attention by lifting them up, getting them out of the dirt, giving them preferential airspace in the, in the elevated position where they get better sunlight, better wind, better breeze, better um, up in the air away from the creepy crawly bugs and stuff down there. Okay? The Father has worked specifically to put them in a point where they have, can take maximum advantage of the, of the uh, agricultural environment there. All right? Don't call them do-nothings. Maybe they haven't done what we think they should do. And, and truly, they may, not, they may not bear much fruit. And they will be judged for that. The, vi the vine dresser will discipline them. They'll have consequences in time. They will suffer the judgment seat of Christ. They will suffer a loss. Now, their, their wood hand stubble is going to be burned away. Yes, I understand all that. Okay? But that's all dealt with in 1 Corinthians. That's all dealt with in other New Testament passages. That's beyond the scope of what this passage is talking about. Okay? So uh, handle this passage for its own sake. And don't bring in an outside thing and inject it in here when this passage doesn't deal with that. Okay? 
Let me give you one more example. Um, because this is easy to find. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's uh, look at chapter 2, look at chapter 3. And, and I like these because they're back to back. They're side by side. You can see them for what they are. Handle them themselves for what they are. Don't try to take a later message and inject it into the earlier message. Accept each one for what it is. In chapter 2, we have a, a, a contrast between saved and lost. We have a contrast there between believers and unbelievers. Called the natural man and the spiritual man. And the fact that as spiritual men, we, have, we are eligible to receive instruction through the Holy Spirit. And it says, uh, we have received, in verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So the, the we and the us in the context here, this is all believers, members of the church. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. And so we have spiritual teachers and spiritual hearers, and we have believers in the church. But a natural man, a soulish man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And we've got the contrast between the natural and the spiritual. And this is, in, in chapter 2, this is to, to contrast believers with unbelievers. He who is spiritual, that is, if you're spiritually alive, you're saved, he praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will be instructed? And we have the mind of Christ. So everything in here is a is relationship to the believer versus the unbeliever. And thankfully, if you're a believer, you can understand the, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's that scope. That's the scope of that passage. That's where that's going. And you say, well... What about a believer who's out of fellowship? What about a believer that's not bearing fruit? What about a do-nothing branch that's... Wait a minute, okay? You're taking all these themes and ideas and concepts that, that are appropriate elsewhere, but they're not appropriate here. The scope of this passage isn't contemplating that. Okay? Turn the page, return the chapter. Now get into chapter 3. Now we've got a different context, a different scope. He says, I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, he says, you are spiritual, but I can't talk to you as if you're spiritual because you're carnal, fleshly. He doesn't say you lost your salvation and you're back to being natural again. He says you're carnal, you're fleshly. Now we have a different scope. Now we're dealing entirely with believers. It's not a believer versus unbeliever realm. It's a deal with a believer who's in fellowship versus a believer who's out of fellowship. A believer that's walking by means of the Spirit or a believer that's walking by means of the flesh. And you're still fleshly, he says. That's why you can't grow. That's why he says, I give you milk to drink, not yet solid food, for even you are not yet even able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're still not able. Now, an unbeliever, can an unbeliever drink milk? Can an unbeliever understand milk doctrines? No, an unbeliever can't understand even milk doctrines. They can't understand anything. But a, a believer... Even a carnal believer can still at least take in the milk doctrines to be nursed back to the point of confession where he can confess and be restored back to fellowship. Won't understand meat, can't digest the meat, but you can nurse a, a carnal believer with milk and he can grow to the point where he'll confess and be back in fellowship and return back to the program. So what I'm saying is, is you do damage to the text if you take something alien to the text or something later, or something elsewhere, and try to inject it back in and force it there when it's not there. 
You do damage to that text. Likewise, in John 15, you do damage to the point in John 15 when you try to take something like a carnal believer, when you're trying to take a, a non, uh, maybe a reversionistic believer, a believer that dies of sin and of death, okay? and you try to inject that back into the I am the vine message. It has no business there. The I am, I am the vine message, my father is the vine dresser, is simply contrasting believers and unbelievers. And those believers are in Christ. Unbelievers are not in Christ. Believers are branches in the vine. Unbelievers are not branches in the vine. And a branch that's not in the vine is thrown away. A branch that's in the vine, if it's not bearing fruit, is lifted up. And there's nothing in that context that says, well, what if it, what if it continues to not bear fruit? What if even after it was lifted up, it, it still doesn't bear fruit? What if it just goes totally carnal and dies the sin and the death? Okay? I hear you. I feel for you. I know where you're going. I know where you're trying to go. But you're trying to go where that chapter doesn't. That chapter doesn't go there. Let the chapter give the message that that chapter gives. Let the parable give the message that that parable gives. Okay? And when you try to pour too much into a parable, you damage it every time. Okay? Like trying to find a sister of the prodigal. Right? You got two sons. You got the older brother, you got the prodigal. And, and you want more than that? Sorry, it's not there. Try to find a sister. Try to find a mom. Try to find, you know, the family dog, whatever. It's not in the story. You can't inject it in there. So, when we talk about do-nothings, we're talking about unbelievers are the do-nothings. Because they're not in Christ. It's a branch that's not in the vine. It's a branch that can't bear fruit because it's not connected to the vine. never has been connected to the vine. The do-nothings are unbelievers and they are fire-bound. You are not fire-bound. Now, the judgment seat of Christ has fire associated with it, but it's not the, the, the not being cast into the hell and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the, the uh, consumption that happens there. All right, finally then, Abiding in Christ is mutually reciprocal, as is abiding in His Word. Abiding in Christ is mutually reciprocal, as is abiding in His Word. They're both mutually acceptable, uh, reciprocal, but they are not identical. They are, there's a difference between abiding in Christ and abiding in His Word. There's a difference between Christ abiding in you and His Word abiding in you. And this is where we now take the step to go beyond where you were trying to take it before in verse 5 and 6, we finally get to it now in verses 7 and 8. Now the chapter is taking us into a position where a branch is abiding in Christ, but His Word is not abiding in Him. You have a believer that's not a disciple. Now we finally, in verses 7 and 8, we start to approach concepts where um, we have to deal with glorifying the Father having the intimate prayer life, having the, the working prayer life. And can I do this in 45 seconds before the top of the hour? Abiding in Christ is mutually reciprocal, as is abiding in His Word. In other words, abide in me and I in you. It's reciprocal, mutually reciprocal, bidirectional, both directions. I'm abiding in Christ. Christ is abiding in me. I live in Christ. Christ lives in me. You see, it goes both ways. And I can't volitionally stop that. 
I can't stop abiding in Christ any more than Christ can stop abiding in me. Not on a positional reality basis. There's, what can separate us from that? Nothing. I've eaten the flesh. I've drunk the blood. I'm saved. I've believed in Him. This is now the permanent, ongoing, eternal reality. I abide in Christ. Christ abides in me. I'm a new creature. All things have passed away. But abiding in His Word, now I've got choices. Because abiding in His Word is not a positional thing. Abiding in His Word is an obedient thing. Abiding in His Word is where I choose to have my mind. What, where I choose to think. What I choose to occupy with. Am I going to live in the Word of God? Is the Word of God going to live in me? Am I going to let it dwell richly within me? Or do I have so much filth in my thinking that I don't have any room for Scripture? I don't, have, I don't take the time to memorize Bible verses because i got all this other stuff clattering around up there that drives out my other thinking. I'm worried about baseball statistics. I'm worried about the stock market. I'm following this and that. So abiding in His Word is experiential. Abiding in Christ is positional. Abiding in His Word is experiential. Does that help? Okay. Abiding in Christ is positional sanctification. Abiding in His Word is experiential sanctification. And where I choose to fix my mind. We'll expand on that next week because that's also reciprocal. I need to live in the Word of God and I need the Word of God to live in me. And if I do that, according to John 8, 31, I'm truly His disciple. And if I do that according to John 15, 8, I prove to be His disciple. Okay? Question? Uh-huh. Right, that's where, uh, that's where, again, okay, the question, I'll repeat the, repeat the question for people listening on tape. Verses 2 and 3 is talking to believers. Okay, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And there he's addressing to the 11 disciples. But then in verse 4, the abide in me and I in you, this, he's not speaking strictly to and only to the 11 now he's uh, addressing anybody that the you there is, is, is anybody. Is anybody that is to eat the bread, drink the cup. Anybody that is to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Anybody that believes in him. Abide in me and I in you. When you connect it to John 6, 56, means be saved. Okay? And so he's, no, he's not telling them to get saved again. If you're already saved, then you're done. You know, it's, 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 a, it's an aorist imperative. You can only do it once. Okay? Um, and so, yes, that would be, uh, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's, that would be, you know, talking to an unbeliever saying, you know, unless you're saved, you're not, you're not connected to Christ. You're not bearing the fruit. You're not glorifying the Father. That's a good question. Does that make sense? Okay. So it switches more. There's a, there's a technical term for it, and I forget it, where the you there becomes a editorial you or some kind of a you. Where it's just talking to anyone who might read this later, anyone that might hear this message, anyone that you might speak to. Um, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, who's the you there? Well, it could be anybody that you're talking to on the street. You know, originally it was the Philippian jailer and Paul was talking to him, but any reader of the of the passage, any any person you're evangelizing on the street is just a generic you. It's a whosoever. Okay, good question. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Continue to open our eyes to understand that we do abide in Christ. Christ does abide in us. That's a positional, eternal reality. But we must also maintain the 
expectation beyond that to abide in Your Word, to have Your Word abide in us, to prove to be disciples, to bear much fruit. And so, Father, I ask that You would open our eyes to this and convict us of these applications. I thank You in Christ's name. Amen.